Question for you. Have you ever wanted to give yourself better odds on winning a bet? Well, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving you a chance to do just that. All players who place a bet on Sunday night's basketball game between LA and Denver will have a hand in lowering the over-under on the game. That's right, for every 1,000 players who bet the over on Sunday night's game, the over-under will drop by one point. Every better who hammers the over in Sunday's Denver vs. Los Angeles game helps to lower the game's over-under, and the best part is, is that even as the line lowers, the odds remain at even money. That's right, you can double your money by hammering the over. And if that's not enough excitement for you, there is a huge title fight happening this weekend at UFC 258 as the welterweight belt goes up for grabs. Don't forget DraftKings Sportsbook also offers great odds and promotions on basketball and hockey and so much more all week long. We've got a busy week of NHL action coming up, and if you want to get yourself even more invested in the game, DraftKings Sportsbook is the app for you. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN when you sign up to hammer the over on Sunday night's basketball game when LA takes on Denver. For every 1,000 people that bet the over in Sunday's game, the line will decrease by one point. Yes, this is your chance to improve the odds of the overhitting, so tell your friends and family because this is a team effort. Hammer the over and improve your odds of doubling your money. That's promo code THPN for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Tell It Abs It Is podcast, your home for everything Colorado Avalanche on the Hockey Podcast Network and sponsored by DraftKings Sportsbook. Use promo code THPN when you sign up for access to exclusive offers. And folks, we've got some good news in spite of the lack of news over the last week and a half since the last Avalanche game against the Wild today. We have some actual news, and that is that Nathan McKinnon, Devon Tays, and Pierre-Edward Belmar will be back at practice when the Avalanche open up on February 11th when they are allowed to finally have their facilities open again. And as much as it sucks not to have the Avs playing for a few days, ultimately I think this might have turned out to be a blessing. Like I talked about last episode, you would have been going up against the Blues and the Coyotes without, obviously, Nathan McKinnon, your best player. And Devon Tays, who's been excellent on the back end and the perfect partner for McCarr. And now, ultimately, they might come back only missing one game, or at least for McKinnon, only one game that the Avalanche obviously won against the Wild. So despite the fact that the Avs did end up having three players in COVID protocol, that including obviously Tyson Jost, Gabe Landeskog, and Sam Gerrard, it really feels like they dodged a bullet with this one because as we've seen with just on the other side of the ice with the Wild, it's starting to spiral out of control for them. I'm Frankly, I am shocked that this didn't blow up worse. If this many wild players, or even even if it was just a few wild players on the ice that either had it or were at risk of having it, this could have gotten really out of hand fast. Just the fact that it was only three players, and I'm not saying at all that this was a good thing, but the fact that it was only three and we don't know what happened. We don't know if Joe Landeskog or Gerard actually tested positive or if they were considered high risk. But I think the Wild, last I checked, are up to 12 on protocol now. And uh, the New Jersey Devils had two players removed, I believe, bringing their total down to a measly 16. And you've got more teams being shut down every day. Recently, we had the Flyers shut down just on Tuesday. Their game against the Capitals was postponed, and we're back up to five teams now. It seems like every time a team is off the list, another one gets added to it. And hopefully, 
by the 11th, the Avs can stay off that list, and hopefully everybody else can stay off that list. But that also doesn't seem to be the case, because right before I hit record, it seems like Vegas might have another flare-up sooner than later. Thomas Nosek polled during the game in the second period and is put on COVID protocol today, yet no one else is put on protocol because it was, I guess, deemed they weren't high contact, even though he was likely sitting next to them on the bench. I mean, I didn't watch that game. I haven't looked at the stats or anything, but did Thomas Nosek land a hit at all on anyone? Would that not be considered close contact? I just think it's kind of proof that we're just making this shit up as we go. I don't really think they're really taking it seriously. I mean, if a guy is tested positive and is pulled out in the middle of the game, the second period, it's not like they caught this two minutes in. I just, how every player isn't considered close contact to him after they played and sat next to him doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but this could eventually affect the abs if the NHL is wrong about this, and I mean, hopefully they are right, and Nosek is the only player to go on protocol and no one else needs to, because if they are, Vegas might need to go on another break, and... Guess who the Avs' next opponent is? Vegas on Sunday. And guess who their next opponent is after that? Vegas. And after that, Vegas. And after that, Vegas. Oh, and don't forget, there's that outdoor game on next weekend. Not this weekend, but the next weekend that the NHL has barely promoted at all. I think I've seen one more commercial in the time since, and it was the same one. And I saw it during an NHL game, which barely counts. This is just my opinion, but I think if that game gets either postponed at this point, the NHL might consider pausing the season because at the, at that point, that's kind of significant to have an outdoor game that you're putting a lot of faith into and experimenting with. Can't you're not going to be able to replay that outdoor game? I just don't know how logistically you would be able to postpone that to a later date. I just don't think that would be possible. They would just re they would just replay the game on in Colorado because this is technically considered a home game for the Avs, even though it's in Nevada. But whatever, I guess. So they if this game is postponed, then it would be rescheduled as an Avalanche home game. But I, I really hope this does work out. I hope it's just no sec. I know everyone is just hoping it's just no sec. But come on. Like, I was just thinking about this the other day. Like, you see, I saw the Flyers go on the protocol list and seeing more and more players added to the NHL COVID list. And it's, it's just getting ridiculous at this point how many positive tests and how many players are going into protocol. Like, the NFL had their share of problems throughout the season. They had games postponed and pushed back throughout the week. But ultimately, they survived and pushed back the season. They didn't push back the season at all. They handed out a Super Bowl, obviously the Buccaneers, champs, Tom Brady, more Super Bowls than any franchise, which is ridiculous, and you got the NHL right now. I mean, Buffalo, I mean, they had their head coach test positive, and they've got a ton of players still on, and now they're saying they're going to let fans back in the arena before they even have a team to put out onto the ice. Minnesota, they are adding more and more. I mean, I think just before... I pressed record. Who was it? It was Victor Rask that was added to the protocol list as well. I mean, the Devils. Oh, I was wrong. They're at 17 players, not 16. So they had 19 before today. And the Flyers are a new team on that list with Braun Giroux and Sanheim. So I think for the Avalanche, this could have been a lot worse. And it, I think it's wishful thinking at this point. But hopefully this is the last we deal with it. But at the same time, this could also be the next thing that we have to deal with because we have four games upcoming against a team that is now, that just had a player who is now on the list pulled during the game in the second period. So I think that'll be something that we have to keep an eye on over the next few days because let's just, let, let's just go into the, the worst case scenario. And all four games against Vegas are postponed. 
You know what that means? It means that the Avalanche will play a grand total of three games in February. They will have played the game against the Wild on the second, and then they would have one, two, three weeks off before they play Arizona. At that point, surely they would put a game in there somewhere. Like, you can't just leave a team out to dry for three weeks. I mean, what happened with St. Louis after we had our games postponed against them and Arizona had their games against the Wild postponed was they moved for Arizona to play St. Louis seven times in a row, which is crazy. And... There is no indication that the games against Vegas are in danger yet, but we might be 24 hours from now. I mean, by the time you're listening to this, I'm recording on Wednesday night around dinner time. 24 hours from now, we might see another Vegas player go on to protocol. We might see two go on to protocol. And then the question starts to get asked about whether or not we're going to play these games next week. And maybe we don't at that point. Like, let's say tomorrow Vegas gets shut down and their games are postponed. It wouldn't be, I don't think at least, the end of the series. If this happens tomorrow, if this happens later in the week, it's a completely different story. But if it has to happen, it should happen tomorrow because they would get shut down for a while and... Definitely the first two games in Vegas would be postponed, but there is that three-day break from the 16th to the 20th before that outdoor game on Lake Tahoe. So maybe that game wouldn't have to be rescheduled because maybe Vegas would be cleared by that point. It's crazy that I'm even talking about it like this. Like, this is just, oh, so if the an entire NHL team gets shut down for a little over a week, we'd still have time to go and play the outdoor game next weekend on the 20th. It's just, it's getting, it's getting crazy at this point. And I hope that it gets under control soon because I don't want the season to be paused. I really, I don't, no one does like, but it's just been kind of a mess. I mean, I can't remember in recent memory, uh, an NHL season with this many news stories. I mean, how many games are we into this season? I think for the Avalanche, what are they, 12 games into the season? Some teams have more than that. I mean, we're just barely at the 20% mark of the season. We've had, we had one of the biggest trades in the last few years with the Line Dubois trade. I don't think I've talked about that much on here. And we've obviously got all the, the COVID stuff. I mean, every, like everything's happening in Columbus right now. If you want to go to them, you can check out the Jackets Debrief podcast on the Hockey Podcast Network. They do a great show over there. And Columbus, fascinatingly enough, one of the more interesting teams in the league right now. I don't think we've ever said that before, ever since the they traded for Matt Duchesne. But there's a there's a ton going on right now. And it seems like it only just is more and more every single day. And as we get deeper into the season, all this stuff is just going to pick up more because... We're going to get to the trade deadline in about two months, which I'll actually talk about in a little bit towards the end of the show. I mean, we haven't even thought about Seattle yet. Like, have we forgotten that Seattle is going to be a thing at the end of this year, too? We're bringing in an entire NHL team next season. We're having an expansion draft. And I've barely even seen it brought up just because this season is so busy. Like, the Vegas season, the season before Vegas became a thing... It was all anyone ever talked about, and we eventually we were all wrong because we thought Vegas was going to be terrible and get nothing but scrubs, but it turns out that teams will just leave good players unprotected and then just trade you another one for free, but my point is we've barely even talked about the Kraken. Like, we're going to have a 30-second NHL team in ideally less than a year. I mean, they said that the NHL season... The target date is October 13th, which I like a lot because that's my birthday, but the target date is October 13th, and in a year from now, we will be well past the halfway point of the season if everything goes well. That is the target date right now. I don't think any of us know what the hell is happening anymore, so I'm not even going to 
get into, well, is it actually going to start? We don't know. We have no idea. But regardless of what happens next season, we still have Seattle to deal with in the offseason and an expansion draft, and I wanted to look at that and what that would look like for the Avalanche as this season does eventually wind to a close, hopefully with a completed season. But once the season winds to a close, the Avalanche actually have a bit of an interesting dilemma once the Seattle expansion draft rolls around, and it centers around one guy, and that's Eric Johnson. Eric Johnson has a no-movement clause. Interestingly enough, Eric Johnson is the only player on the team that has a no-movement clause. Now, some guys have modified no-trade clauses. McKinnon has one. Landis Gog has one. Brandon Saad has one. He signed that contract in Columbus, I believe. I don't believe he signed that in Chicago. He signed this contract in Columbus, and in the final year of his contract, he gets a modified no-trade clause, 10 teams he can be traded to, doesn't expect doesn't really affect us all that much outside of the expansion draft. He's going to be a UFA, so it's not going to matter. And Nazem Kadri has a 10-team no-trade list. Again, I don't think that affects the expansion draft either. I think the only thing that matters here is that Eric Johnson has a no-movement clause, and that means he is automatically protected in the expansion draft unless he waives it or he's just no longer on the team. And I looked at this on Twitter a little bit, and it's a bit of an interesting scenario. So, the way the expansion draft works is that you can only protect, obviously, a certain amount of players. You can protect seven forwards, three defensemen, and one goalie. Or you can protect four defensemen, four forwards, and one goalie. Or you can, or that's actually the same thing completely, you can protect both eight forwards and defensemen together and one goalie. I guess that's officially how they call it. So you could protect no defensemen if you really wanted to. But the way this works is that with the no movement clause, like I said, Eric Johnson would have to be protected. And obviously, you're also going to protect Kale McCarr. You're not going to leave Kale McCarr exposed. I don't even need to humor that. And then you have to make a choice when it comes to your third defenseman. And... On the books next season, you still have Sam Gerrard and Devon Tays. And if you don't protect one of them, odds are you're probably going to lose the other. And I think it's a pretty safe bet that in this scenario, that Sam Gerrard would be protected over Devon Tays. And so how this works is that you protect those three, and then you can protect seven of your forwards. And that includes, obviously, the big three, Ranton and McKinnon, Landeskog, and then... Bits of your second line, Burakovsky, Kadri, Donskoy. This is just the list that I did on CapFriendly.com in their expansion draft simulator. I protected Burakovsky, Kadri, and Donskoy along with the big, three, the big three. And the seventh one, if you go this route, is really just comes down to personal preference. You could protect Comfer, you could protect Nichushkin, you could protect Tyson Jost, or anyone you want for that matter. If you go this route, I don't think it matters all that much. I protect... I protected Tyson Jost because I think he has the most value. Even if he's not on the team next season in a trade, you still want to hold on to that 22-year-old high draft pick asset that you can flip for something else. And you would leave Kompfer unprotected, Nichushkin unprotected. So in this one that I have set up, just in this 7-3-1 format, Devontae's is unprotected, Pavel Fransos is unprotected, Ryan Graves is unprotected. JT Kompfer unprotected, and Nachushkin unprotected. Now, Brandon Saad is not protected because he is a UFA, and I just realized that I have made a big mistake in this because Gabe Landeskog is also a UFA at the end of the season, so if he's still unsigned by the time the expansion draft rolls around, you don't need to protect him at all. So that really throws a wrench in my plan. I did not realize that until literally right now so you can protect someone else. Now, if Landeskog is signed to an extension, or Saad, this can apply to both of them, if Landeskog or Saad is signed to an extension before the expansion draft, I do believe you would have to protect them at that point. So maybe just from an asset management like circumstance, maybe you don't see at least Landeskog signed to an extension until after the expansion draft. 
Brandon Saad, I just, I don't know how they bring him back with salary cap implications unless he takes less money, which I doubt I don't, that's a whole, that's a whole nother thing, but at very least, I don't see him having a contract before the expansion draft, so I don't think you need to entertain that all that much at the moment. So if Landis Gog is not signed to a new contract before the expansion draft, you don't need to protect him. Or uh, maybe you do, because they can take his signing rights. But at the same time, even if they did, I don't think Landis Gog would want to leave. I mean, if they take his UFA rights... He doesn't even have to answer their calls, and then he can just come. Like, it's a... I now realize that I have not thought about this until this very precise moment. But I do think you can leave Landis Gog unprotected and leave his signing rights exposed. Because I just don't think... Like, I just don't think he would take any money they would give. I just think he would come back. He's the captain of the team. I don't think he's going to go out to Seattle and sign a new contract out there. He's not under contract. He's a unrestricted free agent. He doesn't have to sign with them, even if they do, for some reason, take his rights, and then he can just come right back here if he really wants to. The only risk with that would be you'd have to let him hit the market and then let other teams negotiate with him. So that's a whole rabbit hole, but just for the sake of this conversation, say unprotected. I don't think Seattle would take him because I just don't think he would sign there, and they're not just going to specifically screw over the Avs and take him and let him go to market. That's just, I don't think that would be in their best interest at that point. So anyway, getting back on track, you can protect one more person. Now, let's just say for, just so I don't waste any more time, you protect JT Comfer. You protect Valerie Chushkin. Big freaking deal. I'm getting off track here. So anyway, my point here is back on the defense. Eric Johnson's no-movement clause creates kind of a pickle for the Az because obviously they would want to protect Devontae's over Eric Johnson. But if Eric Johnson has not waived the no-movement clause or is still on the team, they have to. They don't have a choice in the matter. So what happens with Eric Johnson in the offseason? Because I don't think Joe Sackick is, if Johnson doesn't waive it, just going to accept his fate. And just be like, well, I guess we're going to lose Devontae's. Because a no-movement clause, this this is something I had confused for a long time, and people still get confused with. A no-movement clause is not a no-trade clause. He does have a modified no-trade clause, but that trade clause lists 19 teams that he can be traded to. A no-movement clause means he cannot be sent to the minors, basically. It's not a no-trade clause. So he has a modified no-trade clause, like I just said, that lists 19 teams that he can be traded to. So if he does not waive, I think your first option is a trade. Now, obviously, Eric Johnson has three more years left on his deal. At the end of the season, it will be two years at $6 million. I don't think that's that bad. I mean... He's not a top pair defenseman, at least definitely not in Colorado, but I could I could see a team be willing to take that. I could see like a younger team, like a team with just utterly no defense and a team that just needs some stability on the blue line taking on that contract. I mean, uh, let's just say, for example, this is not a prediction, but the, the New Jersey Devils. I could see them taking Eric Johnson at $6 million. You can have him go along with that younger core. He's, I mean, Eric Johnson's been around the block a few times. It's not $6 million is far from an albatross. It's not like this is an untradeable contract. This is not like a, teams that just sign bad contracts, no movement clause, too much money, and we just can't do anything about it. This is a tradable deal. With two years left at $6 million and retained salary, you can work all that out and everything, I don't think you'd want to just because of cap implications and you're going to have to pay money anyway and you don't want dead cap. It's a movable deal. But the other option 
is if for whatever reason there is no trade, you can't work out a trade under any circumstance, and he will not waive the no-movement clause, you can buy him out. And that would, in turn, allow you to protect Devontae's in the expansion draft. Seems a bit extreme to just get rid of Eric Johnson to ensure protecting a player, but I can almost guarantee that if Devontae's is unprotected, that Seattle would take him. I mean, he's on a great deal until 2024. He's got three years left on the deal after this. I mean, what general manager in their right mind, if Devontae's is just sitting right there, wouldn't take him for free? You don't have to trade for him. Like, his contract's already signed. Like, who wouldn't just take that for free? That's a free top pair defenseman for you and your new team. That's pro- that'd probably be their best defenseman. I haven't studied all the other teams' expansion lists that closely, but I'd bet Devontae's, if he's available, would be probably one of the better players they could take. And Devontae's on this team is really, really good. So with Eric Johnson, you can buy him out, and the cap implications for that would be... It, the cap hit for it would be $2 million a year for four years. The way, That's the way cap or buyouts work on the cap. They, if two years left, it's going to cost you less cap, but for more years. And for Eric Johnson's case, it would be $2 million a year. So for the two years remaining on his deal, you would actually save $4 million against the cap. I mean... That'd be pretty good at this point. But for the two years after that, it costs you $2 million against the cap because after these two years, obviously, his contract would have expired. And then the two years after that, you're just... It's dead cap at that point. And the problem with that is that that final year of that buyout extends to a pretty critical point, and that is the Nathan McKinnon contract that... We don't need to worry about yet. After this season, it will still be two years off. But you still have to kind of keep it in the back of your mind if you're Joe Sackick right now when you make moves. Because, oh my god, that is terrifying to think that... It, first of all, it's absurd at the fact that we've had Nathan McKinnon at 63 for the last four years, that is by far, it is not even a competition, the best contract in the league. Horrible for Nathan McKinnon. I don't know who his agent was when he when they signed this contract, but that is terrible. I mean, he signed this contract when? 2016 after the season, and that was after a 52-point campaign, and then, and then the Avalanche have their terrible season where they're bottom of the league and McKinnon has one more point he has 53 points instead of 52 and then he blows up 97 99 93 and this season 14 points in 10 games it's the best contract in the league by a mile and when that contract expires I think you're not only going to have to pay Nathan McKinnon for being Nathan McKinnon which I think alone is no less than $12 million. No less. That is the lowest that it would be. And you're also going to have to pay for not paying him enough back then. It's like, I did you a favor back then. Now I get my due as well. And I don't know if that would actually be a negotiating tactic used by McKinnon's agency or McKinnon himself for that matter. But you cannot rule it out. It's a thing. You see it all the time. Like, players, they take less on bridge deals, and they're like, okay, I did you a favor. Now you pay me back. So it's not something you can just ignore. And then, so getting back to it, Eric Johnson would cost $2 million against the cap for that year. And that's not the end of the world, but the Avalanche are not going to have this freedom to have this much depth and cap space forever. In fact, it ends this offseason. Uh, we can get into that in a moment, but I just want to finish my point on Eric Johnson. Nathan McKinnon is going to make a lot of money. A lot of money. 
you're going to need all the cap space you can get. Not only to just sign, I mean, you're going to, they are going to sign Nathan McKinnon. This is not about not having enough room to sign Nathan McKinnon, because that is not a thing. If you don't have room to sign Nathan McKinnon, you make room to sign Nathan McKinnon. But that takes me to my point. You need room to field a team around Nathan McKinnon after you sign him to a deal. And if that deal is just, I am making this up $13 million. I mean, we don't know what the cap's going to be in three years. I mean, by all indications, it's going to be the same. But we just we can't see that far into the future. We can't see it till 2023 right now and what at the NHL would look like at that point. But let's just say it's $13 million. Let's say the salary cap is the same and Nathan McKinnon gets $13 million. I mean, when McDavid makes, what, 12 and a half right now, if I remember correctly? Yes, McDavid makes 12 and a half. He takes up 15.3% of the cap, or I'm sorry, 16% of the cap. And I believe the salary cap went up a, like a few million dollars before this season. He signed this deal in 2017, and it kicked in in 2018. So I think the cap went up a few million dollars. So that same percentage, if McKinnon is to ask for that same percentage of 16%, I think it would be around $13 million. So let's say he gets that. He gets $13 million on his next deal. I'm doing math in my head and it's not working. 6.3. That is, that's more. He's getting more than double on his next contract. So what does that mean? You're ba like, Nathan McKinnon makes 6.3 right now, and then you're basically adding that same deal plus an extra 400000 onto there. You're going to have a lot of trouble. And to add on to that, you have Landis Gog to deal with this offseason. He's a UFA, and he's going to get a raise. I don't think, I don't think it's going to be a bank-breaking raise, but he makes like a hair more than five and a half right now, which is underpaying him for his services. He signed that deal back in 2013, and that was worth about 8.5% of the cap. If he takes that same deal, I'm, you know what, I'm not even going to try to do that math in my head. It's going to be more. It's going to be of at least a few million dollars more if he takes that same cap percentage now. I, th I think $8 million, I think that's fair, right? Around $8 million six years maybe more than that i mean it's it's landis gog he's in his prime right now he's the captain of the team i don't think you need to play you know nickel and diming with like the oh the sixth year and the seventh year and everything you can deal with all that down, like seven years down the line with in the position that the team is in right now don't think you should be overly concerned about oh the the, the sixth and the seventh year just give him the seven let the let the contract take him to till he's 35 or 36 with an 8-year deal at $8 million. I think that's fine. It's what a 2 and a half million dollar raise livable, but a raise nonetheless and the big one which I was planning on talking about him later in the show. And so I can just bring him up briefly here. Kel McCarr is an RFA after this season. And while I love watching Kale McCarr this season and think he is the greatest thing ever, and I absolutely love the guy, I am terrified of what he's going to get on this contract. I was going to talk about if Kale McCarr is going to win the Norris this year, and he's at very least a favorite. So let's just say that Kale McCarr does win the Norris this season. He becomes the first frigate player since Bobby Orr to win the Calder and the Norris in back-to-back -back years. What does that make his next contract? Because if he just wins the Norris outright, how do you give him any less than $10 million a year? Like, how do you give him less than 10 times 8? $80 million. Even if he doesn't win the Norris, let's just say he gets nominated and gets third. I don't think that's worth that much less. I mean, you might still have to give him $10 million outright because I bet I bet that he opens the next season as the Norris favorite, and I bet within the next three years he's going to bring home at least one. It's not like it's 
everything's fine right now and we have all this depth and that's why we need to enjoy it because it is not going to be there forever. And I'll get I'll get into more with Kale McCarr and the Norris and the contract thing when I get to him later. But Eric Johnson, I don't even remember where I was at this point because I just got so far off track with Landeskog and McCarr and McKinnon. But Eric Johnson's $2 million takes him to the end of the McKinnon deal. And at that point, you have much less salary cap space. Now, if you do buy out Eric Johnson, it does help with Landeskog and it does help with McCarr for this season because it saves you $4 million against the cap. But then the $2 million for two years after that might become a bit of an issue. Ultimately, if Eric Johnson waives the no movement clause, I think everything will be fine. Honestly, I don't think Seattle would take him. And even if they did, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I mean, for an expansion team taking a 32-year-old at $6 million... I think there would be better options. I mean, going back to... So let's just go back to the expansion draft and unprotect Eric Johnson. He waives the no-movement clause and protect Devontae's instead. So this would leave, just ignoring Landis Gog and Saad because they're UFAs at the end of the year, that would leave Matt Calvert, Val Nichushkin, Belmar exposed, and Ryan Graves exposed, and Pavel Francouz. That's kind of tough, actually, to predict who would actually get taken by Seattle in that instance. I don't think they would take Francois just because I think there are better options for goaltenders out there in the rest of the league. Just much stronger tandems. Not Nothing against Pavel Francois at all. I'm not saying at all that he's bad, but I just think there are better 1B options out there that would be left unprotected. Ryan Graves, I think it, de- I think it depends how the rest of Ryan Graves' season goes. Because he started out rough. We all know that. But he's looked a bit he looked a bit better. Like, just looked a bit better in the few games leading up to the pause. He looked better, especially in the last game against the Wild. I mean, Ryan Graves is basically all hockey IQ. He's a very smart hockey player. He just he doesn't have that same skill set, that same tool set that'll a lot of other NHL players have, but he's very smart. If he can just get back to even a little bit of last year's form, let's, I mean, just like 70, 80% of last year's form, I could definitely see Seattle taking him in that instance since he's 25, strong defensive defenseman when he's at his best. But you've also got a guy like Val Nichushkin who is signed for another year. You'd get one more year of him. Matt Cal, I also just realized, is a UFA at the end of this season, so that is moot. We can wipe him out entirely. You don't need to protect him. You don't need to worry about him being taken. So that would be Val Nichushkin and Pierre-Edouard Belmar at that point. So basically, I think at this point, it would come down, and Belmar is also a UFA. I'm also realizing this as well. So anyway, so basically, it comes down to Eric Johnson, Ryan Graves, Pavel Francouz, and Val Nichushkin. Which one do you prefer at that point? I think when you come down between the two, you take Ryan Graves. I think it would be... The Avalanche would prefer to keep Ryan Graves over Eric Johnson, I would think. But I don't think you have much of a choice at that point. I think it would ultimately, just in terms of salary cap and asset management, be better for Seattle to take Eric Johnson... But I also think that's exactly why they wouldn't take him, because why would they do that? I think the smarter bet for them would be to take Ryan Graves, a 25-year-old who had a very solid rookie season last year, and if he bounces back to even just most of that form from last year, I think I think that'd be an easy bet. He signed until 2023, just like Eric Johnson, to have two years left after this, and he makes... A little over $3 million. That would certainly be manageable. So, in the end, who would you, I mean, who would you rather lose? Would you rather lose Devontae's because you couldn't find a way to unprotect Eric Johnson or move him? Or leave Eric Johnson unprotected and quite possibly lose Ryan Graves in the expansion draft? It's a pretty easy answer. Devontae's 
is excellent. I mean, I've made it very clear that he is awesome and I love the guy. So I would be very upset to lose him after just one season. I mean, I'd lo- we lost him for a few games and I was, you, you could see the difference without him there. He's just such a calming presence on the ice. And Ryan Graves, solid player when he's at his best, but just not Devontae's. And if we lose Eric Johnson, I think ultimately getting that $6 million off the books would help a lot, especially when it comes to signing contracts. And you, I mean, Bo Byram, Connor Timmons. I mean, if Ryan Graves gets taken, okay. Bo Byram just moves up in the lineup and you can bring someone else up or you can sign someone. You're allowed to do that as well. If Eric Johnson gets taken, Connor Timmons can plug back in there as well. I mean, it's not the end of the world. Some teams, like, they got screwed in the expansion draft for Vegas and they didn't recover. I mean, a team like Florida lost both Marcia So and Riley Smith. They could have very much used them. The Wild lost Alex Tuck and... Oh, I just totally blanked on his name. He plays for Nashville now and he got hurt, and I can't remember his name, Eric Halla. They lost him as well in the expansion draft. Losing Ryan Graves would be far from the end of the world, and honestly, it's probably the most realistic scenario, unless Eric Johnson cannot be either moved or waived at this point. But really, I just don't, I just don't see how that would happen. I don't, you, you ask him to waive it, he says no, okay, well that's one, you get to the second part, you try to trade him, you see if any team would be willing to take him, and you wouldn't be wanting to retain more than $2 million, or maybe you would, you wouldn't want to retain more than $2 million in a trade, because then you can just get that in a buyout, but then in the trade, his contract would expire, and you don't have the $2 million cap hit after that. Or there's no trade, or the teams are asking for a sweetener and you don't want to do that, or sweetener's too much, and then you buy him out, and then you don't have to protect him. And then at that point, you are you are losing a bit here. You do lose Eric Johnson, and you're probably losing Ryan Graves as well. And you're signing Kale McCarr to a big deal, you're signing Landis Gog to a raise, and there's going to be some subtractions this offseason. This team on paper next season is not going to be as good. But that is a whole other bridge that we can cross another time. I don't need to get into that yet. But Saad's going to be a UFA. They'll, they'll bring back Landis Gog. Don't worry about that. I, if they don't bring back Landis Gog, I, I don't know what I'd do. It's just it's so unrealistic to me. I don't need to entertain it. Saad's a UFA. Calvert's a UFA. Belmar's a UFA. In this scenario, we're talking about trading or buying out Eric Johnson. That's going to be a loss on defense, and you're losing Ryan Graves as well. That's two of your top six defensemen gone. But Bo Byram, Connor Timmons plug back in. And I know Bo Bo Byram's already a major part of this team already, but it just gives him more room for an increased role. He's already plugged in to the lineup, but you, you can figure something out. Losing Johnson and Graves is not going to be the end of the world. And staying on the topic of the defense, I did want to talk about Kale McCarr. I mean, how how can you talk about the Avalanche and not talk about Kale McCarr right now, especially with no games happening right now? How can you not talk about Kale McCarr right now? He's He won the Calder last season, and we knew we had something special on our hands. We knew we had something special even before he joined the team. We saw in the playoffs when he joined the team for the first time that we had something special. But even in just the the smaller sample size of this season so far, we've seen something even more special from Kale McCarr. He has, in a lot of advanced metrics and even just watching him play, has proven himself to be one of the best defensemen in the league and a Norris favorite right now. I'd wager the Norris favorite right now. I don't know if there's any way I could see that right now, but I'd wager he is the Norris favorite at the moment. I have not seen anyone else's name even really brought up for Norris talks yet outside of Kale McCarr just because of how good he's been. 
I've seen metrics that have Kale McCarr as the most effective player in the league right now in terms of game score and wins above replacement. Like, he, he's phenomenal so far. I don't know if he's going to keep that pace the rest of the season, but if he does, he first of all, he wins the Norse in a walk. And like I said earlier, the last person to do that, to win the Calder and then win the Norris the next season, was Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr was a long, long time ago for the Boston Bruins. No one else has done that since. We're talking about a lot of good defensemen. like Guys like Nick Lidstrom have come and gone and have not done that. Cal McCarr, I mean, we are 20% of the way into the season. Making any kind of claim is ridiculous at this point, and I'm not prematurely celebrating a win by Cal McCarr for the Norris at all yet. There's still guys like Victor Hedman and John Carlson to contend with. But the fact that it's even a possibility and that we are here at this point and even discussing it for a 22-year-old in his second full season to quite potentially be the best defenseman in the league right now is absurd. Like, one thing I said the other day on Twitter is that Kale McCarr is the true definition of a generational talent. That word gets thrown around too much for my leg. I think words like generational and elite get thrown around too easily. Like, they, they talk about certain players being generational talents. There are a select few generational talents in the NHL right now, and I think it's a very exclusive list. I mean... The smallest I'd be willing to go on generational talents would be Sidney Crosby, Ovechkin, and McDavid, with all those other great players in the league just still on the outside. And even a guy like McKinnon, as fantastic as he is, I think a term like generational is reserved. But I'd be willing to expand that definition more to include players like McKinnon and Matthews in that conversation as well. But I just think they're too young at this point. I mean, McKinnon, he's not young anymore, but just need, we need to see a little more out of him. He hasn't won a heart yet, even though he should have. I have brought that up multiple times. He should have two hearts right now. He was robbed in the Taylor Hall year, and he was robbed last year. But that doesn't change the fact that he doesn't have one yet, and I don't control that. Even though I disagree with it, I don't control that. And Austin Matthews hasn't done anything yet. We're talking about talent. And Connor McDavid, I know he hasn't done much either. I mean, he's won a heart at this point. He's won a scoring title, but hasn't gone anywhere in the playoffs while McKinnon has. I mean, we, we could do this all day. We, this is what I mean. Like, generational gets thrown around too easily. When I think of generational talents, proven generational talents, Alex Ovechkin, Sidney Crosby are examples of generational talents. I mean, guys like Joe Sackick, generational talents. Wayne Gretzky, obviously, generational talent. Mark Messier, Nick Lidstrom, guys like that are generational talents. Even the word elite gets thrown around too easily, but that there is as way too broad of a category. And Kale McCarr is not generational yet, but he has the potential to be. What he has done so far in his short career is nothing short of exceptional. And he's only 22. This is his second full season. He still has room to grow, is my point. He's already in that conversation of best defensemen in the league, at worst, one of them. And he still has room to grow. We don't talk like this about other players his age. I mean, even guys like, even a guy like Miro Heiskinen, who was picked one spot before Kale McCarr by Dallas in that same draft year. He got, like, before the season, people were like, this could be a big breakout year for Miro Heiskanen. He could be a special player for the Stars this year. And he is. I, I love watching Miro Heiskanen play. He's actually a year younger than Kale McCarr, but he was picked one spot before him. And he's been great this season. I mean, Miro Heiskanen's a great player. But he's not receiving that same, like, this guy is literally been, like, in terms of some advanced statistics, 
better than guys like McDavid. And that, that's not going to stand for the entire season. Like, guys like McDavid are going to continue to go up that list. It's McDavid on the Oilers. He is the most valuable player to his team. But the fact that Kale McCarr, through these games, is even up there is crazy. But we are going to take a quick break right now and hear a promo from our Habs Nightly Podcast, our fantastic Montreal Canadian show on the Hockey Podcast Network. Hope you guys enjoy, and I will talk to you guys and continue the Kale McCarr conversation after it wraps up. Uh, you know what? I'm just I, so I... heated because of what, what you're telling me, because I, I do not want to live in a world <laughs> in a world where a craft dinner is the fucking substitute to a good macaroni. You're putting powder. No, no, no. Mac- macaroni, as you call it, is a substitute for KD. God. <laughs> oh my God. Go to go to Italy. If you crack ask, open some fucking no, 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 craft no, no, no. dinner. No, 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 no. If you ask any Canadian, would they rather have macaroni or KD? They will tell you KD is the best, it is superior, it is a fucking national treasure, and it is the greatest dish in Canada. I'm Mason Dixon, a Habs fan stuck in Leafs country, with my co-host Corey, a southern beauty trapped deep in the bayous of Louisiana. With over 2,500 kilometers of separation, we still managed to come together to give you Habs Nightly, your hub for Habs content. While I don't know what a kilometer is, I do know Habs hockey. Don't let the 10-year age gap or distance fool you. We bleed Blue Blanc every week, and we're known to serve up hot takes along with our unique charm. Join us every Monday and Thursday for Hockey Talk, Ref Rage, and your daily dose of Southern ignorance. Only on the Hockey Podcast Network. Katie is the superior macaroni and cheese. Get the fuck out of here. You put um, ketchup on your fucking macaroni, you nasty kid? Yes, I fucking do. This has been Habs Nightly. You guys have a great one. I mean, and Dom LeCision tweeted this on February 1st. He tweeted out the top average game scores across the league. And number one is Kale McCarr with 2.18 game score. And number three is Nathan McKinnon with two. And second, Connor McDavid for Leon Dreisaitl. Small sample sizes, I know, but that's not nothing to be above everybody in the league, including guys like McDavid, your own teammate McKinnon, and Leon Dreisaitl. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, he also says in the replies that Colorado gets almost 70% of scoring chances when he's on the ice. And the best the best in the league last year for the full season was 62%. Now, obviously, like I just said, sample size and all that's going to come back down just like every super hot stat right now in the league they all eventually come back down and overall my point is that Kel McCarr has put himself in a category I said this on Twitter the other day too is that him and Quinn Hughes are not even comparable anymore Quinn Hughes is not even in the same category as Kale McCarr anymore let let alone the dub that debate is over it ended with the calder and Makar is he is running laps around the track with him and Quinn Hughes is just crawling on the ground trying to keep up he can't because Kale Makar is in a completely different stratosphere from Quinn Hughes I do not ever want to hear that debate again like it that debate was ridiculous Kale Makar is better I'm not even going to waste any breath on it and now we've put Kale McCarr, arguably the best defenseman in the league right now. I mean, and according to that, best game score in the league as of February 1st. Obviously, the Avs, they played one game since then, and other teams have played a ton of games since then, but for the Avs, only one. But Kale McCarr could win the Norris this season is ultimately what I'm getting at. He'd be the first since Bobby Orr to do it. 
He's also, like I talked about just a few minutes ago, he doesn't have a contract after this season. And he's going to get paid, capital P, paid. I mean, he's on an entry-level deal right now for just south of $900,000. And like I mentioned earlier, he might be, at this point next year, making $10 million on his next deal. I mean, you do not give Kale McCarr a bridge deal. No. You sign him for eight years, and you pay full price for it. Because if you bridge him to a two-year deal at, like, 6 or $7 million, you could be talking about him, he, him winning another Norris after that. And now you're talking... 14 million dollars you you pay the 10 or whatever it is or less than that i'd not i'm not a negotiator i can't give you a proper estimate on what that contract would be right now but the first number that comes to my mind is 10 million dollars and what other do other defensemen make 10 million dollars right now i'm sure i could find that out somehow if other defensemen make 10 million dollars there's there definitely is. I just, for whatever reason, can't think of one off the top of my head. There, there, there should be, right? I mean, players make above $10 million. Okay, Eric Carlson and Drew Doughty make over $10 million. Eric Carlson, first of all, makes $11.5 million. Oh my god, I've forgotten how monstrous these contracts are. And Drew Doughty makes $11 million. So I've, I don't even know if I would count these just because they're such awful deals. I mean, former great players, Eric Carlson used to be as hyped and as loved as Kale McCarr is now just because of how exceptional he was back when he was with the Senators. And Drew Doughty obviously was one of the best defensemen in the league. He, he's won his share of Norris's as well. They earned this money. But they're also on these contracts on teams that are bottoming bottoming out until the end of time. I mean, Drew Doughty, I, th- I thought this, I thought Drew Doughty signed this contract in like 2016. He signed this deal in 2018. It didn't even kick into effect until last season, and it goes until 2027. Oh my God! And Eric Carlson, I mean. This contract at the time was a mistake based on his injury history and at the price and the length. $11.5 million for eight years. $92 million as a whole until 2027. I don't know how you, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that. He was injured in his time with the Sharks. And when he played with the Sharks, he was great. And when he was with the Senators before he got traded, he was great. But he had a strong injury history. And now you can see he's just not the same player. I mean, 11 and a half is what you pay for him in his prime. Not now. Anyway, I'm getting off track here. So I don't even know if I would count those. Kel McCarr would be the first defenseman, if he gets this deal, to make $10 million and, I mean, not be an albatross to his team. There is no other defenseman besides Carlson and Doughty, and they're both 30, that makes above $10 million against the cap. I think that would eventually change. Someday, I think a lot like guys like Heiskinen would eventually approach that mark as well. I don't even know if McCarr would get $10 million. That's just the number I'm coming up with off the top of my head. Man, I mean, what a a time to be in a contract here. I think we need to have this discussion. It's ultimately too late because it happened two years ago. Was bringing Kale McCarr on for the playoffs a mistake? Should they have done that? They burned the entire first year of his entry-level contract for 10 playoff games and yes he had six points in those 10 playoff games and he scored the goal in the debut against calgary in game three and that was awesome and that was great and he was a big part of winning that series against calgary and pushing that series against the Sharks seven games was it worth it would it not have been worth it to get another entry-level deal i mean 
hindsight is always 2020, and it's easy for me to, you know, criticize Joe Sackick and the people who made these decisions two years after the fact, but just looking at what Kale McCarr is now, 10 playoff games, I've, I would have rather gotten the extra year of entry-level deal at 880,000 just not worth it I just don't think I just don't think that's worth it and I might be wrong on that and maybe Kale McCarr was a bigger part of that playoff run than I remember but the Avalanche they were the second wild card that year and it was it was unexpected that they beat Calgary I mean let's not kid ourselves I mean they were big underdogs in that series and it was surprising that they were as dominant as they were But ultimately, that team was not going to win the Stanley Cup, and they didn't. They didn't have the depth. They they had the star power. They did not have the depth. So was burning a whole year of McCarr's entry-level deal worth it just for, that, just for that playoff run? I mean, I guess when you're in the playoffs, you're not really thinking about what's this going to look like two years down the line? Because you want to win. And obviously, Kale McCarr gave them the best chance possible to win. That is without question. I mean, you can see it in the results. Adding Kale McCarr made the team better. So maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being unfair here, ultimately. You, when you're in the playoffs, you give yourself the best chance you can to win the cup, and if bringing in Kale McCarr gave you the best chance to win the cup, you do it, and you deal with that third year of that contract when the time comes. You don't hold back in the playoffs. Was it worth it? Back then, yes. Now, no. You didn't get out of the second round, and now you have to pay him next year. So ultimately, not worth it, but you had to give yourself the shot. That is, I think that's fair at the end of the day. Kale McCarr is very, very good, and I can't wait until the abs are back and we can see him continue to go on this role in the future. I mean, it, it's special. I mean, I don't want to say that we have a generational talent on our hands because, like I just said, that word's overused, but there's a shot here that Kale McCarr could really evolve into a generational talent. Like, Nick Lidstrom level generational talent. Like Eric Carlson in his prime, like he was very on the fringes of being that generational talent. And if he just played on a team that wasn't the Senators, he probably would have gotten more recognition and probably much deeper playoff runs than the one that he got in 2017. Kale McCarr could be that. I'm not saying he's the exact same player as Eric Carlson, but Kale McCarr has the potential to be that and potentially be even better than Eric Carlson was. Even Eric Carlson wasn't this dominant in his second season with the team. I mean, I can't even name the last one who was. But if he continues at this pace and growing at this pace, I mean, like I said, second year by his third year imagine what by his fifth year imagine what he'll be that's my ultimate point imagine the fifth year of Kale McCarr and what that would look like it's we've got something special on our hands here and I have not seen a ceiling for him yet not at all I mean Man, just how unfair is it? You have Nathan McKinnon, who is a perennial heart candidate to win MVP, and now you've got Kale McCarr, who, by all indications, is going to be in the Norris conversation every single year. And you're not even talking about a guy like Miko Rantanen, who has been surpassed by certain players in the Rocket Richard talks right now, but not his fault because the Avalanche haven't played games recently and 
who knows, maybe if they were, he would have had a big game and be back in that conversation. I think that conversation right now is dominated by a player like Austin Matthews, who's what, on an eight-game goal streak, I believe. Miko Rantanen's at seven goals in 11 games, and Austin Matthews, I'd have to look again, but he's at He's in double digits at very least, and it seems like he scores every single night. He's, I believe, at he's at 11 goals right now. Miko Rantanen is still on the list right now. Austin Matthews is the only player in double digits with 11 goals. You have McDavid, Tyler Toffoli, Brock Besser at nine goals. Tyler Toffoli up there. I mean, didn't he score eight of those goals against Vancouver? That's going to come back down to earth, but Jesus, good for him. Brock Besser, I mean, in a what's been a panic year for Vancouver, good for them. And then you got guys like Ehlers, Dreisaitl, Josh Anderson at eight, and then Rantanen is tied with Stamkos and Joe Pavelski at seven. I predicted coming into the season that Matthews was going to win the Rocket, but in, when the Avalanche come back, and if Miko Rantanen keeps playing the, the way he's playing, He'll put himself in that conversation. I think Matthews is going to win it just because, I mean, look at the way he's scoring right now. I don't think he's slowing down anytime soon. Miko Rantanen will at least be in that conversation, and that's huge. You don't you don't have to win the Rocket Richard outright. I mean, it's been dominated by Ovechkin for the last 15 years. That doesn't mean there haven't been great goal scorers in the league besides him. But anyway, yeah, McKinnon, McCarr, Rantanen, and... We haven't even like we haven't even discussed Bo Byram yet. We haven't even seen what some like these other players like Alex Newhook can be, and we have a guy like Landeskog, one of the best captains in the league. Like this is a special, special team. Like this team, this core has the potential to be one that you talk about for a long time, and. I know they have to earn it first, but you see this core, and it's hard not to compare it to just the great teams of old, like the Red Wings and all the talent that they had, and even a more modern version, like the Penguins. Like This core is special, and it's a, it's a shame that it's been robbed of us for a little over a week, and hopefully by the time I get to the next episode that I would record on Sunday and be released on Monday. Hopefully, we have an NHL game against Vegas to talk about. That would take place in Vegas on the 14th, 5 p.m. Mountain Time. Hopefully, that game happens and we have something to talk about that is not me just drooling at this team and looking ahead towards the offseason. And it's a shame that it's even a question right now whether that game's going to happen or not. We'll see if the Thomas Noslick situation affects anything in Vegas, but that is going to do it for me today on this edition of the Tell It Abs It Is podcast. Follow me on Twitter at NHL and follow the show at Tell It Abs It Is. I have been your host, Griffin Youngs. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next time.